share God's word with you today. Uh, Today's psalm begins uh, with these words. Uh, Blessed is the one. Blessed is the one. Uh, This word blessed in its original language can also be translated happy. Happy is the one. And it's interesting that the psalm begins uh, with this pursuit of happiness, this pursuit of a life that is blessed. Because this is something that we're all familiar with even today. Going after what we believe will satisfy us in life. Going after what we think will give us meaning in life. Because we all have this desire in us, don't we? This desire to be happy. This desire to be blessed, to live this blessed life. And for many of us here, if we think about it, there's probably that one thing in your life. Or maybe it's a few things. That if we're honest about it, we really believe deep down, if I only have this, if I only have that, then I will be happy. If I only have this, then I will be satisfied in life. Then I will consider my life to be blessed. Maybe if I only look like this, if I only look like him or her. Maybe if I only have more money in my bank account. If I can only get this job, this promotion that I've been hoping for. Maybe if I can only get married. Or maybe if only my children or my grandchildren can live up to my expectations for them. And this list goes on. And for many of us, we have made certain life choices, uh, sacrifices in our life, in order to pursue what we believe is this happy life, this blessed life, to create what we believe is this blessed life for us. Psalm 1 begins with this uh, pursuit of happiness, this pursuit of blessedness. But for the psalmist, um, blessedness is not about the happiness we receive when we get what this world can offer. It's not just an emotion of being happy, and not even a positive set of life circumstances we can feel good about, even though these may be good things in and of themselves. And in fact, this psalm warns us against uh, false or counterfeit happiness, a temporary happiness that many people will try to get apart from God on their own. And for the psalmist, true blessedness, true happiness is a state of receiving God's blessing, a deep satisfaction in life, a joy, a security that is real, that is overwhelming, even when it seems like everything in your life is going wrong. And so as we look at this psalm today, I pray that it is an encouragement to us as we reflect on our lives to choose this blessed path that the Lord has put before us. This path that leads to the greatest satisfaction, the greatest joy, and the greatest blessing in God. And so why don't we pray before we look at today's text. Father, we ask for help as we seek not just to understand with our minds, but to understand with our hearts. Father, we ask that you may grant us wisdom and change us through the power of your word. 
And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, someone says that there are basically two ways that life can be evaluated. And it uses two agricultural images to describe these two evaluations in life. And it says that, it says that when it comes down to it, when it comes to the end of the line, our lives can be evaluated either as tree, positively, or either negative or negatively as chaff. Our lives will either be evaluated positively as a tree or negatively as chaff. So first, uh, let's look at the tree. In verse 3, it says, That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose light leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. And the psalm says that this tree has four characteristics. Uh, first, this tree is strengthened by grace. It says that this tree is planted by streams of water. Uh, when I think about a tree, I often think about uh, the very tall trees in Vancouver, uh, where I lived for a while, uh, trees that are maybe 50, 60 meters high. And I think about a tree that is strong, stable, deep, because it has deep roots into the ground. But the psalmist also tells us why this tree is strong. And it's strong because there is a source of strength outside of itself. It says it's planted by streams of water. And I think that it is with every Christian that is flourishing. We aren't strong because of some inherent strength in and of ourselves. The Christian life really is living, learning to live in the strength of another learning to live in the strength of God, learning to be continually strengthened by the river of God's grace and God's word. Second, we're told that this tree feeds others. It says, which yields its fruit in season. The psalmist is saying here that the person who is flourishing is not satisfied by being personally strong, but they actually cannot help but want to feed other people and to overflow into other people's lives. It's kind of this picture of the sap inside the tree exploding within, and it needs to find an outlet so that others can pick this fruit to eat. So people are meant to eat the fruit of their lives. And as people eat the fruit of our lives, they're nourished by God's grace in their own lives. Thirdly, uh, the psalmist says that this tree perseveres. It says whose does not whose leaf does not wither. Um, this is a parallel passage uh, to a passage in uh, the book of Jeremiah, and it says this: "But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in Him. They will be planted. They will be like a tree planted by the water." that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. The idea when it says its leaf does not wither, it's really pointing to the fact that there are different seasons in a Christian's life. 
there may be seasons of drought, of heat. It can be the form of trials, uh, temptations, suffering, pain in life. But the Psalms is saying people who are like trees are not just the Christians who know how to walk with God when life is exciting, when things are going well. But they learn to walk with God during the times when uh, nothing seems to be going right for them. And often it's in these dry and difficult seasons that uh, we learn to grow stronger because we learn to depend more on God. Fourthly and finally, uh, the psalmist says, uh, the tree prospers spiritually. It says, whatever they do prospers. Uh, when we read this, this kind of could be kind of confusing because people may think this is validating some kind of prosperity gospel of health and wealth and circumstances. But I think the idea of being spiritually prosperous is this. Uh, when we think about all the callings that we have in life, whether it's being a parent, a child, a student, an employee, a boss, uh, even uh, someone, a leader in ministry, that there's something supernatural, a deep power of God, a deep blessing that comes on the things that we do. And sometimes it can manifest itself in visible success and fruitfulness. Sometimes we can see the fruit of our labor. But sometimes a Christian may be faithful, but we may not see any outward faithfulness right away. And it may be a season of pruning, or the faithfulness or the fruitfulness is coming later in life. When it says whatever he does prospers, I think God sometimes wants us to see externally beyond what we might see in that person's life, beyond external circumstances. And look beyond and see, is there something supernatural? Is there something of spiritual power flowing from that person's life and what they do and how they live? I think that's the essence of what the psalmist is saying in whatever they do prospers. Uh, the psalmist goes on, and uh, he secondly gives us the second evaluation of life. And he uses uh, still an agricultural image, but a very different image, uh, and a contrasting image, and it's the image of chaff. In verse 4, he says, Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Uh, chaff, it's a farming image. And it's an image uh, after, of after farmers gather their harvest from the field. And the harvest would have uh, this outer husk, uh, for wheat, for example. And this outer husk is called uh, chaff that needed to be removed before you get to the most valuable part, the grain, the edible part of the plant. And what farmers would do to separate these two things, uh, separate the chaff and the grain, is this process called threshing. Uh, in those days, and uh, some in some places today, farmers would uh, first use sticks. Uh, they would beat the grain on the floor uh, to loosen up the chaff. And then what they would do is, uh, very interesting, they would throw the grain in the air when there's wind. Oftentimes, this is on a higher part of the land, on a hill. And because the chaff is lighter than the actual grain, uh, it would start to blow away in the wind. 
whereas the heavier grain, the edible part, would fall to the ground. It's quite an intelligent uh, way of doing this. Uh, and the psalmist says, the wicked are like this chaff that are blown away in the wind. Uh, when we use the word wicked, uh, let's not misunderstand that phrase. Uh, the Bible says by nature we're all sinful. Uh, we're all wicked in our hearts. But wicked here refers to those apart from God, those apart from the saving grace of Christ. And the psalmist is comparing the path of the wicked to this useless chaff. Chaff has no value as food. You can't eat it. It doesn't feed anybody. It's light. It's meaningless. Only good to be blown away in the wind and thrown away. Interestingly, most theologians, when they write about this, they emphasize the worthlessness of the chaff. That chaff is in and of itself worthless. And the idea is that uh, life without God proves itself to be fairly without worth. That it actually doesn't have much to speak of in the final analysis, except perhaps a bunch of accomplishments that don't really matter much in the end. And the truth that life apart from God is worthless in the end. But I think here there's also an emphasis on the lightness of the chaff and the fact that there's no substance there. It's absolutely weightless. It just gets blown away in the wind. And the life of God may have the illusion of looking like a very full life. If you look at uh, people living around you, it may look like that. But this is saying it only proves to be a flash in the pan. It's temporary. <coughs> it may appear that someone has everything together in life. They may be successful, have lots of money, pursuing their dream. And they have what they have, they have what makes them happy in life. But in fact, uh, the psalmist is saying here, if they don't have God, if they're not walking on God's path, they have no spiritual substance or power or weight in God's kingdom. And that ultimately that type of life will have no meaning and purpose and is inconsequential in light of eternity. And at the end of the psalm, the uh, psalmist makes it clear what these two evaluations will lead to. In verse 5 and 6, it says this, Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked, wicked leads to destruction. Now the psalmist says here that there is a final destiny for everyone on this earth. That there is a judgment day. When Christ comes back, the wicked will not be able to stand because they have not trusted in God and his ways. And because they have not trusted and followed Christ as their Lord, no one will be able to stand for them in the judgment. And he also says that neither will they be able to stand with the assembly of the righteous, with the people of God. And they cannot be together because they have separated themselves in this life from first the ways of God, 
but also secondly from the people of God. And so on Judgment Day, there is no future hope. Uh, there is no eternal life. When the psalmist refers to uh, this group of people as, as wicked, uh, it almost sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? Uh, they may be uh, what seems to, sometimes we are friends, and they might seem to be good people. Why does the psalmist refer to them as wicked? Do they really deserve to be called that? But I think he refers to them as wicked because literally the word uh, that's used is disobedient. Ones who are disobedient to God's instructions. Ones who don't trust in God's ways, God's commands, the way God sees best. Because they make the mistake believing that God ultimately will not satisfy them in life. Just like Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis, they doubted God and his desires to give them what's best. Inside they wondered, is, is God really for me? Is God really on my side? Does he want what's best for me? But the psalmist here says there is no blessedness. There is no true happiness and joy. There is no true satisfaction apart from God. And if we think that we can pursue satisfaction and this blessed life according to what we think will satisfy us, the truth is we will never find it. And the psalmist is warning us that our lives will ultimately end up like chaff, chasing after things in this world that ultimately do not matter in the end. And so secondly, and uh, very quickly, um, how do we become more like this tree? Um, and that leads us to our last point, one way to blessedness. And the psalmist tells us that there are two things we can do uh, in verse 1 and 2. First, it's to beware the wicked way. Beware the wicked way. And second, to pursue God's way. To pursue God's way. Verse 1 tells us to beware the wicked way. It says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. And the psalmist is showing here that there's this progression that sin has in our lives. The more we engage in it, the more we get addicted to it. If you notice, it first says he walks in sin, he's walking. And then eventually he starts sitting. He's comfortable. And there's this progression of compromises to grow in sinfulness in your life. But we also see a progression even in the sinfulness. It goes from he's being involved in it. It's described as a wicked or sinner. But then he becomes one who's promoting it. It's called a mocker. And the psalmist is envisioning this progression from this relatively casual association with the wicked, with sin, slowly turning into this complete identification with them, someone promoting it, someone whose life reflects godlessness. And the psalmist is telling us, blessedness is not found in walking in these ways. Blessedness is not found in walking in the ways of this world. 
sometimes perhaps when we feel spiritually dry, when our intimacy with God becomes cold. We can sometimes look into this world and look at what others are doing and start to believe what it tells us and what it teaches us sometimes. Maybe I would be happier if I had more money in my bank account. And therefore, let me start living for that. Maybe I would be happier if I started living more according to what pleased me and did what my body told me, told me and did whatever I did uh, with a license of freedom. And sometimes we're tempted to believe this. And living in the society, in our Western society, that glorifies materialism, that glorifies sensuality, we're constantly, every single day, tempted to believe in this and buy into this. To believe that this is what happiness is. To believe that this is what the blessed life looks like. The psalmist is speaking clearly. He's speaking so clearly to us. Do not walk. Do not stand. Do not sit. Do not let this hardening of the heart happen to you today. Maybe for some some of us here, if we think about our lives and if we're honest about it, maybe there has been some of this hardening in our hearts that this worldliness, it it kind of looks good. And we just want to play with it just a little. Or delight in it. Delight in the things that this world has to offer. But the psalmist here, he's reminding us that this is not happiness. This is not blessedness. And he's encouraging us to examine our hearts. Where are we? Have our hearts bought into the way of this world? Has it dabbled with it? Has it begun to walk? Maybe stand? Getting close to sitting in it. Secondly, the psalmist says that we need to pursue God's way. To pursue God's way. In verse 2, he says, But whose delight is in the law of the Lord? And who meditates on his law day and night? And, and who meditates on his law, meaning God's word, day and night. Uh, the word meditate uh, literally means to mutter. Um, it's an interesting word. It means uh, to chant, to mutter, to mumble um, with your breath. And it's the idea of saying something to yourself over and over and over again. And the idea is, as you're muttering God's word, as you're meditating on it, memorizing it, pondering it throughout the day. It's this image of the word of God slowly traveling down from your mind to your heart. And it turns into delight. It turns into joy. It turns into spiritual pleasure. It says, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord? It's really an image of us continually filling ourselves with God's word until it overflows in our lives with delight, pleasure, and joy, much more so than the things of this world. Uh, One thing that I think we need to understand, and a key ingredient that Christians often miss, is that for the Word of God to turn into delight in our lives, it, it takes time. It takes patience. It takes perseverance for that to happen. 
The psalm says he meditates day and night, uh, not just meeting once in the morning, once at night, but the idea of continually throughout the day, all the time. And I think the reality, reality is that if we haven't been in the Word lately, we can't expect it to be immediately satisfying to us. Sometimes it might begin feeling dry. It might begin feeling pleasureless. Sometimes it might first become a, a, be a raw discipline at first. But as we keep, in, keep on doing it, as we keep on meditating it, pondering it, reading it, a desire will grow in our hearts. And it will be something that we want more and more and more of in our lives. And over time, we realize it can become a delight, something that's sweet, something that we want more and more of as we keep on pressing on and meeting God in word and prayer. And that's really what verse 3 is describing. It says, a tree planted by streams of water. It's really physically picturing this uh, spiritual reality in verse 2. Uh, the stream of water is this uh, life-giving word of God. We take it in through the roots of our minds and our hearts and ears. And it comes into us producing joy, delight. And we become this fruit-bearing tree planted by streams of water. It's quite a beautiful image. Uh, maybe for some of us here, we have uh, heard this psalm many times, uh, and we know these things in our in our minds. Um, but we feel weak, and perhaps we feel powerless to do anything about it. We want to live this blessed life. We want to be in the Word. We want to live this way of blessedness. But we feel like perhaps it's impossible for us to change. Uh, well, let me end uh, today uh, with one of my favorite parables from Jesus. Um, and this is from Luke 13. And it says this, uh, Then he, meaning Jesus, told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? What good is it? And maybe for some of us here, we feel like we are this barren tree. We feel like we are nothing good. We are to be cut down thrown out. But the parable goes on, and he says that Jesus is the vine dresser who stands and acts on behalf of this barren tree. In verse 8 it says, Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. <coughs> And we see here that Jesus, he's, he's pleading for this tree. But not only does he plead for it, he works for this tree. He digs in the soil of our hearts. He puts fertilizer to awaken our dead hearts. 
And then this vine dresser says, if it doesn't bear fruit, you can cut it down. Um, but as most of us know uh, from the Gospels, that uh, Jesus was the one who was eventually cut down. He was cut down on the cross for each one of us. And because he was cut down, as he took our eternal punishment for our sins, it means that Jesus is forever working for us today. He's still working in the soil of our hearts. He's forever our advocate, our vine dresser who promises to raise us into fruitfulness. So let us not be discouraged. Uh, let us not lose hope because Jesus Christ is for us. He's the vine dresser in our lives who says to each one of us, by my grace, uh, because of the cross, I promise to grow you into a tree uh, planted by streams of water.